If I was to ask you uh, what makes a good life, I wonder what you would answer. Uh, we're all looking for the good life, aren't we? Uh, nobody wants a bad one. Uh, we all want to enjoy a good and happy life. But you know, it might seem strange, but many people don't stop to consider what the good life really is. They simply assume what a good life is and then go for it. And so many are disappointed as a result. Uh, for many, the good life is financial security, uh, having a bank balance in the black and being comfortable. Uh, some, it's about uh, having job satisfaction being happy at work. Uh, for others, it's having a happy family, perhaps a house with a picket fence and 2.5 children. Uh, for many, that is what the good life is. But none of these things get to the bottom of what the good life truly is based on God's words. So many people run here and there, running after this and that, thinking it will make them happy, thinking that's where life is to be found. But they don't stop to listen to our Creator. They don't stop to listen to God Himself to hear what does God say is the good life. Well, thankfully, in these verses, we learn what the good life is. Peter tells us. And not only does Peter tell us what the good life is, he tells us how we can find it. And it might surprise you what Peter says. Let me look, read again verses 10 to 12. Remember, this is immediately after Paul has said to believers that they must love one another that they must be compassionate towards one another, to be considerate of one another. And he encourages them to pursue love and peace with each other. And then he says this in verse 10. He says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, I wonder if those verses surprise you a little bit. Peter says that we should pursue good and shun evil if we want to have, if he says, we love life and want to see good days. Peter says the key to enjoying the good life, as Peter describes it, is to shun evil and pursue good. Now, that might surprise you, because you might think that Peter would have said something like, 
we should pursue love and shun evil because God has told us to. And that's true. He has. God is God and he commands us to shun evil and pursue peace. But that's not the reason he gives in these verses, however true that might be. You might expect him to say something like, we should love one another, be at peace with one another, because all human beings are made in the image of God. And that's true. We should love one another because all human beings have a dignity and a worth in the sight of God. They're made in God's image. But that's not the reason Peter gives here. The reason Peter gives here is what we might be tempted to describe as a selfish one. Uh, It's not selfish because it's what we all look for anyway. Uh, We all want to enjoy life. We all want to see good days. And what Peter says, given that's the case, if you truly want to see good days, if you truly love life, then the best way to do that is to shun evil and do good. That is the way to the good life. And yet so many people in the world don't see it that way. They see following God, pursuing him, as a life of drudgery and pain and suffering and difficulty. And they think religion or faith or God himself, is just a straitjacket to make life miserable. And yet Peter says the exact opposite. He says, actually, the only way you can enjoy life as it's supposed to be enjoyed is by looking to him and by listening to him. And we'll see that as we go through. Uh, but just before i explain that in more detail. It is important to make clear that when Paul says here, good days, he doesn't necessarily have in mind the kind of things we think about when we think of good days. Uh, Good days, we think, are long ones, a long life, prosperity, health, wealth. That's what we associate with good days. But that's not what Peter says are truly good days. You can live for a hundred years with all the wealth in the world and yet your life be miserable. On the other hand, you can live a short life and yet have a truly blessed one. And that is what Peter is talking about. He says it doesn't come from a comfortable bank balance. It doesn't come from a life free of suffering, a life free of difficulties where all your dreams are fulfilled. He says it comes from a different place. True blessedness, true happiness is different. It's deeper. And he describes it basically under three headings. It's these three headings I would like to look at this morning. Uh, You can read them in verse 12. Peter says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The good life, the truly good life, is the life where God's eyes are, 
are watching over you. A truly good life is the life where God's ears are open to your cries. And the truly good life is the life which enjoys the smile of God. Those are the three things which make a truly blessed and happy life. I just want to look at those three things in turn now, uh, one at a time, and see how that is the case. Let's look at that first one. Uh, The good life is having God's eyes watching over you. As Peter put it in verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. You know, there's a verse in 1 Chronicles, which is one of my favorite verses, and that uh, Philip and Hannah's wedding on uh, Monday, uh, they had a Bible uh, in the corner for guests to highlight uh, favorite verses and to put their name uh, next door to it. And so they've got this Bible with a whole catalogue of highlighted verses from their uh, friends and family. And uh, the verse I highlighted was this one, which was in First Chronicles, which reads, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. I love that verse. It says that God's eyes are roaming through the whole earth looking for people he can show his strength to, who he can show his support to, to those whose heart is loyal towards him. Now, at this point, I need to be very, very clear what that means. Uh, And it also applies to what Peter says in these verses. Uh, In that verse in 1 Chronicles and in Peter's words here, he is not saying that God watches over only those who are sinlessly perfect. Because if that was the case, there would be no one he watches over. All of us are to a greater or lesser extent broken and faulty and sinners. As the Bible itself says, there is none which does good. No, not one. But that isn't what God is looking for. You could say it is what he's looking for, and he's found it in Jesus. And we are wonderfully in him if we are forgiven, if we have received his forgiveness. But what God asks of us is not sinless perfection. What he wants is our face lifted up to him. Uh, If you like, when his eyes are roaming around the world looking for people to show his strength to, he's looking for upturned faces. This is the great tragedy of human life, is that the vast majority of people are looking anywhere but God. They're looking down, they're looking to themselves. Uh, They're looking to other wise leaders or so-called wise leaders and religions and uh, faiths, and they're looking for happiness and joy and satisfaction in all these things, but they don't look up. And God is there, as it were, roaming throughout the whole earth. His eyes are looking for that face which looks up to him. That's the kind of person Peter is describing in verses 10 and 11. When he says, he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
Tragically, so many people think they can do that by themselves. So many people think that they know what God wants. And yet they never stop to listen to what God says he wants. They assume. They think, well, God wants me to do this. He wants me to do that. He wants me to be at church every Sunday. Now, it's good to be at church every Sunday. But is that really what God at rock bottom wants from us? Well, God tells us what he wants. In the book of Micah, it says, What does the Lord require of you but to love mercy, to do justice, and to walk humbly with your God? It's not about sinless perfection. We all fail. What God wants is us to be looking to him, humbly confessing our faults and walking hand in hand with him. Let me just give you a little illustration to hopefully make it clearer. Imagine there are two sons, and both these sons are involved in some, I was going to say crime, let's not call it a crime, let's just say some misdemeanor, and perhaps they steal the cookies from the cookie jar, I don't know. They do something which is wrong, and they're caught, and their parents ask them for an explanation. And one of the boys said, I didn't do it. It wasn't me, despite the chocolate perhaps around his face and on his fingers. And he lies, and he covers it up, and he's deceitful. And perhaps at the start, the other son is the same. Then he has a change of heart. He turns to his parents, and he says, I did do it. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Now, do you see the difference between those two sets of people, those two sons? Both of them are bad. Both of them have done evil. But one of them has, as it were, their back to their parents. They're deceiving their parents. They're fighting their parents. They're walking in darkness. The other one is walking in the light. Equally sinful, in the sense that they've both done the same thing wrong, but their face is towards their parents, not away from them. And that's how the Bible describes repentance and faith. We've all done wrong. We've all turned away from God's but he invites us to turn back, to repent and believe in Christ. And he gives us full and free forgiveness and he shows his strength towards us despite the fact that we have done evil. That's what it means to have God's eyes watching over you. And if you think about it, what greater blessing can there be? Now, we all love security, don't we? We all lock our doors at night and we uh, want to be protected and safe. And yet so many people don't run to the eternal protection that God provides. It's crazy when you think about it. We lock our doors and yet we leave our souls exposed. <laughs> But God watches over those who look to him. And that, for a start, includes physical security. And I was thinking about this just the other day. Who knows how many times God has protected you this morning? Uh, Many of you would have driven here on the roads. Uh, Who knows what angels may have protected you using different 
angelic means, which I don't understand, to keep you safe on the road? Who knows what diseases you've been prevented from having or you have been healed from without you even knowing? Because God's eyes are on you. I like to think, I don't know if this is the case, but I like to think that part of heaven will be being able to see our lives lived and see all the ways God stepped in to protect his children, uh, to protect us, ways which we didn't even realise, ways we didn't even see, but he was watching over us all the way. But it's even more than that, because God doesn't always save us from every inconvenience. He doesn't save us from every pain. He doesn't save us from every difficulty. Uh, Look in the Bible and look up any godly character you like. You can almost open to any page of the Bible and you'll find a godly character who endured pain, who endured suffering, who endured grief and heartache. And yet, God was still watching over them through the pain, in the midst of the difficulty. Uh, Perhaps Joseph is one of the clearest examples. Um, Most of us have not suffered as much as Joseph did. He was sold by his own brothers into slavery in Egypt. He never knew that he would see his family again. In fact, he didn't see his mother ever again. And he was sold into slavery, and he was falsely accused while in Egypt, and he was thrown into a prison for two years. And yet, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, but God was with Joseph. Even in the pain, even in the difficulty, even in the prison, God was with Joseph. That's what it means to have the eyes of the Lord watching over you. And even a prison can be a place of joy if you're there with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says this, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God, if you like, modulates, I think that's the right word, he moderates our sufferings. He doesn't allow you to suffer more than you can handle. He is careful with what he puts his children through. We will have to suffer at times. We will go through heartache. We will have to face death, of course, in the end. But God's eye watches us. If our eyes are turned to him, then his eyes are watching over us. It reminds me of an illustration of um, some people who watched a silversmith and he was um, melting, smelting silver in the furnace. Uh, but he had to keep the temperature at just the right temperature so as not, I think, you can correct me if you're a, Smith, and you know this is wrong, but it was something along those lines. And he had to modulate the temperature so as not to damage what he wanted, but to lose what he didn't. And he watched that furnace with an eagle eye to make sure it's exactly the right temperature for what he desired. And it's the same with us. Whatever suffering you go through, know this God is watching over it. And he will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able. Because his eye is watching over you. That's the first 
key, if you like, to a good life, to have the eyes of God watching over your every step. Let's move on. Uh, That's not all Peter says. Uh, We've seen that the good life is to have God's eyes watching over you, but we also see it's to have God's ears open to your cries. Look at verse 12 again. Uh, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to our prayers. Peter says, when we pursue love, when we pursue peace with God, when our eyes are turned to him, when we're listening to him, not following our own hearts, not following our own inclinations, good or evil, but when we're listening to him and what he wants, then his ears are open to our cries. Now, this is a very unpopular truth I'm about to say now, but it's undeniably taught in the Bible. Uh, The Bible is very clear that our behavior towards other people hinders or helps our prayers. Your relationship with your loved ones, and frankly, your unloved ones, has an effect on the effectiveness of your prayers. Let me just give a few verses to prove that. Uh, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 13 says, whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be hurt. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, a verse we looked at a few weeks ago, says, husbands, live with your wives with understanding as the weaker vessel. Uh, Honour your... I'm just going to get the whites uh, reading here. Uh, Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honour to the wife as the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Your prayers can be hindered by the way you treat your wife. Uh, Mark 11, verse 25, 26. Jesus said, when you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against any, that your Father also is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. If we're bitter and vengeful against others, then God won't forgive us either. And Psalm 66 verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Let me repeat it again. Uh, Like those two sons, the Bible is not saying you have to be sinlessly perfect for God to hear your prayers. It is saying you have to have your face turned towards him. We do need to be like that other son who was contrite, who was repentant, who wanted the forgiveness of his father. We have to have our face turned to him because if we regard, if we coddle sin in our hearts he will not hear us the flip side of that is wonderful if we are repentant before God if we are humbly walking with him confessing our sins and seeking to follow him in his steps the Bible says God's ears are open to our prayers We cry to the almighty God of the universe, and he hears us. 
I don't know if you've ever had to write to the council. Um, and you write an email and it takes weeks, months, perhaps it never happens. Uh, you wait for a response and it doesn't come. And you get frustrated because the council are not listening to you. But we need not have that experience with God. God's ears are open to our cries if our faces are towards him. Uh, Psalm 56 verses 8 to 9 says this. David writes, you number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. What David's saying there is, whenever I cry to you, God, you store up my tears. They're not forgotten before you. When we cry because of whatever pain we're experiencing in life, if God is for us, then none of those tears are wasted. God remembers them. He writes them in his book. That's the wonderful privilege it is to be a child of God. You always have someone to turn to. Always have someone who hears you. No matter who forsakes you in life, David himself said, even if my father and my mother forsake me, you, Lord, will take me up. That's the second key to a good life. To at rock bottom have the ear of God open to your cries. Uh, John Payton was a missionary to the New Hebrides. I think they're in the kind of the Australasia part of the world, just north of Australia. And uh, he went to preach the gospel to a cannibalistic tribe. And he had a torrid number of years trying to uh, teach the gospel there. He lost his wife. And it was a very um, strenuous and heartbreaking time for him. And uh, a few people uh, were saved, became believers. uh, But the tribes people were very um, fickle. And sometimes they'd be for him and sometimes they'd be against him. And on one occasion, they were chasing him through the forest, uh, threatening to kill him. And he had to uh, run and hide up a tree and uh, hide in its branches. Uh, But many years later, he wrote this about that experience. He said, The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Saviour's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Let me repeat that question to all of us here. Do we have such a friend that when everyone else fails us, when our dreams are shattered, uh, when the diagnosis is bad, when the chickens come home to roost, 
when our life doesn't go the way we wanted it to, do we have a friend whose ear is open to our cry? Well, that's what we have if we are a child of God, if our face is lifted to him in faith. That's the second key to a good life, the truly good life, to have God's ear open to our cries. That leads to the third and last key to a good life. We've seen that it's about having God's eyes watching over us, having God's ears open to us. But lastly, it's about having God's smile shining upon us. The good life is having God's smile bestowed on us. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that we're all sinners. We've all turned away from God. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned our own way. But if we turn to him, like that son who confessed his fault, confessed his sin, then we get freely adopted into the family of God. And instead of experiencing God's frown we enjoy his smile. Instead of being God's enemies, which we are naturally, we become his friends. And Peter is saying, that is the central key. That is the foundational key to a truly happy life. To know that no matter what happens, no matter what disaster hits you or your family, you have the strong foundation underneath of the love of God, which can never be removed. Because once you're adopted into God's family, you cannot be kicked out again. You have God for you for all your life. Now let me read the last few verses, uh, or verses 13 onwards of Peter, and he describes it. Uh, He says, Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Do you see what Peter's saying? He's saying, if you enjoy the smile of God, if you're in his family, then you don't need to be troubled when suffering comes by. When people persecute you even for your righteousness you don't need to fret because you can enjoy the smile of God even when you have the frowns of everyone around you and Peter says if that is you you are blessed Jesus said the same thing didn't he he said when you suffer for my sake rejoice in that day Jump for joy, essentially, he says, because great is your reward in heaven. There is nothing of eternal value that anyone can take away from you. If your relationship with God is right, then everything else in comparison is not to be so concerned about. If you get that central thing in the right place, then everything else gets put in perspective. Uh, Let me just, in closing, read Romans chapter 8, because I can't think of a better way to express this truth. 
In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes, and it's kind of the crescendo of what he's been describing about what the gospel is and what it means to be part of God's family. And he writes this in verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or nakedness, or famine, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, if you have been redeemed, if you have been forgiven, if you are in a relationship with God, if you are God's child, if his eyes are watching over you, if his ears are open to you, if his smile is upon you, then there's nothing else you need to fear. There's nothing else that ultimately you need to be concerned about because nothing can separate us from the love of of God. But notice what that means. Paul doesn't say the love of God keeps us from all inconvenience. He says through any inconvenience, God's love endures. Do you hear the difference? That's not the same thing. We may have to go through many dark paths. We may have to go through many difficulties. But what the Bible teaches is that if we are forgiven, if we are trusting in Christ, God's love will never depart from us. Just one final picture. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? And do you remember how the prodigal son turned away, like all of us have to some extent, and he went his own way, rejected his father, rejected his uh, father's instructions, and he went and wasted his life. But then he repented. Then he turned back, and he went back to his father. And what was his father doing? He wasn't standing with crossed arms waiting to scold his son. He wasn't sitting in his house giving up uh, any expectation that his son would come back. Instead, it says the father was waiting outside the door, searching down the road. And the impression is that every day, Every morning he would stand at that street looking to see if his son was returning. And when he saw his son, he ran down the street and he embraced him. Now, if that was true of the prodigal son, when he came back for the first time, how much more is that true of those of us who returned 10 years ago or 20 years ago? God's love doesn't fail. He loves us with that same love all through our lives. Don't be afraid to turn back to him. Perhaps you have wandered away from him. Perhaps you've gone your own way again. Perhaps you've drifted from him. Perhaps your eyes have been taken from him to yourself. 
Turn them back to him. And he is there waiting to welcome you with open arms. And then you can enjoy what is truly the good life, as Peter explains it. And with those thoughts in mind, uh, I've chosen as our final hymn number 755. 755, uh, which is a hymn uh, expressing the faith and the trust that we can have in God. It's number 755. My times are in thy hand. My God, I wish them there. My life, my friends, my soul, I leave entirely to thy care. So we'll close by singing number 755.